quick pop quiz. What network television series holds the record for the highest season rating in America since 1998? Now, to be clear, I'm not asking about the most watched single episode. I'm talking about a season of a television series. And by television ratings, I mean the estimated percentage of American households that watched it. So, in the past 22 years, what television series holds the season record for the highest percentage of American households that watched it? Do you have your guess? Is that your final answer? Let me repeat this. Is this your final answer? This is my final answer. You just won a million dollars! It's hard to overstate the national phenomenon that was ABC's Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? According to Nielsen Media Research, there hasn't been a higher-rated season of a television series since that smash 1999-2000 season of the primetime trivia show. It posted a higher number than all of the reality TV sensations, like American Idol and Survivor, that came after it. Higher than the final eight seasons of NBC's hit sitcom Friends higher than any season of CBS's crime drama, CSI. The program has run in daytime syndicate for decades, but if you don't remember the original primetime version hosted by television personality Regis Philbin, it's tough to convey the spell this show had America under. There is no comparison to the primetime prodigy and the soulless syndicate that it spawned. The original won Emmy Awards. It revolutionized the look and feel of every game show that's come after it. And its influence from the structure and tone to the lighting and musical score has been woven into the very fabric of the reality television genre. A genre that Millionaire itself in some ways originated. It was the last popular game show, the last popular TV show perhaps, to exist before the meteoric rise and incessant accessibility of the internet and Google. It was still a time when a room full of people watching TV could be asked a question, and someone's smartphone didn't spoil their curiosity in milliseconds. But as quickly as Millionaire came, it vanished. Since 1970, no other television program that had a first-place finish in seasonal ratings has ever come and gone as quickly as Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Consider some of the other generation-defining shows that have captured America's collective attention over the past five decades. CBS's All in the Family, nine seasons. NBC's Cheers, 11 seasons. Seinfeld, nine seasons, Friends, 10 seasons, Fox's original American Idol, 15 seasons, Survivor, 40 seasons, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, three seasons. This is the story about what happened to it. But of course, it's bigger than that. It's a story about how we make decisions. 
Yes, we'll encounter greed, politics, and systemic exploitation along the way, but I challenge you to go deeper. Because far too often, we're quick to villainize each other, to broadly paint someone as good and someone else as evil. And we need to go beyond those two-dimensional archetypes. To understand the biases, the underlying forces at play in all of us that drive us to do what we do. To understand what causes any of us to choose to do something that could later be categorized as irrational, short-sighted, or even immoral. But before we can fully appreciate the story of the untimely demise of who wants to be a millionaire, I need to tell you a different one. A story about a man from Vienna. A man named Victor Gruen. Victor Gruen emigrated to New York City in 1938 with an architecture degree and $8 in his pocket. And he took with him a bold new vision. Inspired by his time in Vienna, he set out to completely redesign the American city. To bring a little bit of his home, complete with accessible public greens and government buildings, well-thought-out throughways and pedestrian boulevards, seamless integrations of the local arts and small businesses, to the United States. According to M. Jeffrey Hartwick's biography of Gruen, he had come to despise the design of most major cities. He felt that their downtowns were littered with space-wasting automobiles, and that they were cobbled together by a mix of competing interests and zoning laws, obstacles that all caused people to move inefficiently through them. And the small businesses, the local merchants, Victor felt that they always got the short straw. We tend to wax poetic when we think about downtown living, but Gruen felt that the design didn't encourage people to wander to mingle with one another, to browse the storefronts and do everything city life was supposed to inspire us to do. He saw an opportunity for a do-over in the 1950s as American suburbia was on the precipice of mass expansion. So Victor set about to master plan a community in Southdale, a suburb near Minneapolis, Minnesota. Influenced by the design of Vienna, his plan called for residential areas, public parks, a medical center, all thoughtfully placed in what Gruen saw as the more efficient, more pleasant version of Minneapolis. It wasn't meant to support Minneapolis, it was meant to be an alternative to it. And at the middle of it all, the heart of this nearly 500-acre community was a retail center like you had never seen before. It was fully enclosed and temperature controlled with two floors of retail stores, connected by escalators and surrounded by a multi-tiered parking structure. In the middle was a sort of artificial town square, a hub with a fish pond and some trees. It was designed to serve suburbia, to service the community that would be built up and developed around it. Victor Gruen might be correctly regarded as one of the most influential architects of the 20th century. 
Because an immigrant, a socialist from Vienna, invented the American shopping mall. It's a happy-go-spending world reflected in the windows of the suburban shopping centers where they go to buy. We grew up around malls. They were emblematic both of our culture and of capitalism, an integral chapter in the story of Americana. The fragrances emanating from the department stores, the eclectic, albeit familiar, array of shops and restaurants. We poured into malls around the holidays. They were the backdrops for first dates and family outings, the scene for so many of our first jobs, and a barometer for the health of our very economy. Until they weren't. 2017 has been a terrible year for retailers, and 2018 could be even worse. Well, 2019 marked another big year for retail bankruptcies. 23 retailers filed, including Payless, Barney's, and Dress Barn. That's on top of the 17 bankruptcies in 2018. Why the across-the-alphabet decline? Well, online shopping has doubled in the last seven years. Tastes and habits have changed. Around the turn of the millennium, and accelerating exponentially over the past decade, malls have begun to die out. Retailers closed more than 9,000 stores in 2019 alone, breaking the previous record for store closures of about 8,000 set in 2017. Abercrombie & Fitch, Forever 21, Macy's, The Gap, Sears, icons of the American Mall, and countless others have all closed stores in the past three years. The result of this so-called retail apocalypse? There are now only about 1,200 malls remaining in the U.S. today. And according to a 2017 report by the investment firm Credit Suisse, 25% of those will close by 2022. Today, you can get lost on YouTube looking at clips from filmmakers who have broken into abandoned malls. They litter our suburbs, some dying with two or three stores hanging on, others long since passed, deteriorating for decades. I am sort of fascinated by them, in a healthy way, I think. To me, they're time capsules in our cities, forever paused in the decade, in the year they were abandoned as life passed them by. But what captivates me most about the story of dead malls isn't that it's some commentary on the future of commerce, a eulogy for the old habits of consumer behavior and antiquated brick-and-mortar stores. I don't think that's true. You see, the perception of why these malls are dying isn't entirely accurate. You may think it's because online shopping is killing them, but the data says otherwise. Sure, e-commerce is growing, but according to the U.S. Department of Commerce, online retail is still only about 11% of total retail sales as of 2019. According to a 2017 survey from the investment bank Cohen, people still enjoy shopping at malls. In that study, they found that over the course of 2017, more people visited malls than in the prior year. Yes, online retail is growing at a faster rate than traditional retail, but wouldn't you expect it to at this stage in their respective life cycles? In fact, over the past three years, amidst all of these store closures, brick-and-mortar retail sales have increased something like 3% since 2017. 
Another hypothesis I've heard is that this generation of teenagers socializes more online than they do in physical places. But again, these assumptions, if perhaps part of the answer, are really only nibbling on the outer edges of it. No. The reason these malls are dying is because we built way too many malls. In 2018, all but three countries on Earth had less than five square feet of retail space per capita. Australia came in third on that list with about 11 square feet of retail space per capita. Canada is second with about 16. The United States in 2018 had 23 and a half square feet of retail space per capita, more than five times the retail space per capita of any country in Europe. That investment bank Cohen I referenced earlier, in their 2017 analysis of American malls, they found that based on consumer demand, the United States should have only ever built between 400 and 800 malls. We built double, actually close to four times that estimate. And this isn't just hindsight bias. In 1996, Thomas Hanchett, an historian who taught at Cornell University, published a paper in the American Historical Review that warned us about this shopping mall development bubble. Decades before online shopping or generational social preferences would be blamed for the retail apocalypse, Hanchett was sounding the alarm. So how did he know? The answer, as it turns out, is found way back in the year 1954. According to Hanchett, prior to 1954, there were only about two dozen retail shopping centers in America. And yes, Victor Gruen hadn't come along to invent the indoor shopping center yet, but the main problem before the mid-1950s wasn't creativity, it was economics. For real estate developers, building shopping centers in suburbia was a risky business proposition. Far riskier than, say, just selling plots of houses. This is because shopping centers took significant capital investment. And once built, it could take years of careful rental management to recoup their money. To even make the numbers work, developers would need to buy cheap land. But the cheap land on the outskirts of the cities, there wasn't a lot of homes built up there yet. So even if developers built a shopping center, they weren't even guaranteed there would be a significant amount of consumers living close enough to it. But that all changed in 1954. That's when Congress passed a bit of dreadfully boring sounding tax law called accelerated depreciation. And it was boring. It was mainly enacted to prop up manufacturing industries. But the policy was written broadly. And when it was passed in 1954, the real estate developers discovered that they too could take advantage of it. Okay, here's a super simplified version of what accelerated depreciation means so you don't fall asleep on me. A shopping center is classified as a capital investment, meaning that the buildings, the capital, they're going to deteriorate over the years. So the prudent business owner should be earmarking some of their annual profits for when the day comes that they'll need to replace the building. 
Now, before 1954, the policy was a so-called straight-line depreciation, meaning that in the case of a building, which the government had determined a useful life of about 40 years, the real estate developer was allowed to deduct 1 40th of the original cost of the building each year from their profits tax-free. But then, in 1954, accelerated depreciation meant that every real estate developer could double their deduction every year. So why does that matter so much? Well, here's an explanation with some simple numbers. Suppose your shopping center made $1 million in total revenue in 1955. After expenses and employee salaries, you cleared $500,000 in profit. In a straight-line depreciation model, let's say $300,000 of that money can be deducted, which means you're still getting taxed on the remaining $200,000 of your profit. But accelerated depreciation would allow you to deduct $600,000, more than you made, which means that you could show a loss for the year. So, if you're an investor and you get a portion of the pre-depreciated profits, well, before this policy, you would have had to pay taxes on it, because it would have shown on the company books as profit. But with accelerated depreciation, well, real estate developers could claim what is called return on capital. And that means they could walk away with all of it tax-free. So, all of a sudden, real estate developers have this decision to make. When someone like Victor Gruen comes to them with a bold new vision for a master-planned community, they could choose to take the long view with him to develop the residential communities, the public parks, to build and design with meticulous detail. They could choose to invest in the opportunity to make a substantial, consistent profit in the long term at the expense of significant investment losses in the short term. Or they could just take the most lucrative part of his idea, the indoor shopping center, and build only that. And use this loophole of accelerated depreciation to max out their short-term profits with less regard to the long-term community consequences. What do you think they chose? Yeah, they chose that second option. And they built. And built. From 1950 to 1970, it was common for cities to have built five or six new malls, regardless of population growth. Take Charlotte, North Carolina. In those two decades, 45 shopping centers and five indoor malls were built. But the city itself saw only modest population growth. And from about 1959 to 1970, that percentage was falling every single year. And how about Scranton, Pennsylvania? In those two decades, their population actually fell 40,000 people. But they built three indoor malls over that time, each one bigger than the last. Developers didn't care because they were able to extract substantial dollars in the short term. Malls became catalysts for development, which is the exact opposite of Victor Gruen's original vision. Remember, Victor envisioned a master-planned community where the indoor mall served its existing population. But developers started to build the malls first, wherever they could find the land the cheapest, regardless of the residential development plan around it. 
And all of the things that originally made malls engineering marvels, the carefully calculated distance from anchor store to anchor store, the escalators on either side to encourage consumers to walk the length of one floor before heading to the next, the raised parking lots that had people come in on the second floor. Because we humans, like water, tend to flow down easier than we flow up. Through the years, these details would be engineered out in pursuit of profit. Malls kept getting bigger. 800,000 square feet, 100 stores, 1 million square feet, 150 stores. The mall that was built in my hometown of Providence, Rhode Island, opened in 1999. 1.4 million square feet, 160 stores, five floors, and it was just about 12 miles from three other malls. Development was out of control. And then the bubble burst. So this is usually where the story ends. These evil developers that exploited a tax loophole, that stepped over a strategic long-term investment to reap the benefits of short-term profit, it was their insatiable greed that killed Americana that killed Victor Gruen's original vision of the shopping mall. But if you're going to offer me that explanation, I'm going to push you on it. Why were they greedy? Are some people just inherently good and others evil? I think we can do better than that. I think the death of our malls is a story about something called present bias. And no, this isn't about gifts. I'm referring to our tendency to give stronger weight to payoffs that are closer to the present time when considering trade-offs between two future moments. This has also been called the immediacy effect or temporal discounting. In a 1992 study by economists George Lowenstein and Drazen Prelek, they offered participants the chance to earn $500 today or $505 tomorrow. Most chose $505 tomorrow, but when given the choice between $500 today and $505 a year from now, most participants chose $500 today. The researchers concluded that people are time inconsistent. In other words, we grade something that happens today as more valuable than tomorrow. And our perception of value over time is not a straight line. $505 is always better than $500, but our minds seem to discount the difference the further delayed we are from receiving it. Psychologist George Ainsley ran a study where participants were offered $50 immediately or $100 in six months. The majority preferred the immediate cash. But when Ainsley asked if they preferred $50 in six months or $100 in a year, the majority chose the $100 option. This is the same monetary difference, $50, and the same length of time to wait for it, six months. But because the first scenario gives us money in our pockets right away, we have a tough time saying no. We may rationally understand that $100 in a year is the smarter option, but that extra $50, it just doesn't feel worth it to us to wait for it when we can get paid right now. 
present bias explains why we don't save enough for retirement, why we may put off a diet, or why we fail to go to preventive screenings for our health. And it can work both ways. In a 1999 study in the Journal of Behavioral Decision-Making, researchers asked participants what movie they wanted to watch if they could watch it immediately. The vast majority of them chose what we would categorize as a lowbrow movie. But when asked what movie they'd want to watch four days from now, 70% of them indicated they would want to watch a highbrow movie. This finding explains why Netflix deprioritized their original add it to the queue option in favor of recommending movies for their consumers to watch based on their viewing history. Because we're terrible predictors of what we'll want in the future. Armed with this background, let's head back to the story of who wants to be a millionaire. In the 1990s, ABC was consistently lagging far behind its network competitors in the battle for primetime television ratings. From 1980 to the summer of 1999, an NBC program led a season of television ratings 11 times. CBS had a number one program seven times over those two decades. ABC had one and they had precisely zero in the past decade. NBC had the top six shows in 1996 and the top four in 1997. In 1998, they had the top three, and ABC had only one non-sports program, Home Improvement, in the top 10. And it was number 10. To put it nicely, ABC had been getting beat handily for years. Then, in 1999, ABC executive Michael Davies stumbles upon a British trivia game show and falls in love with it. It was a fresh take on the format, and there was nothing like it on American television, which at the time featured almost exclusively sitcoms, dramas, or news magazine shows in prime time. The program looked nothing like its trivia predecessors, with their garish sets and hokey music. This version was dramatic and intimate. He referred to it once as a, quote, game in close-up, end quote. It put ordinary people in a position to win something never offered before on primetime television. The chance to win $1 million. Davies believes in the idea so strongly, he risks his career on it. He quits his job as an ABC executive to take the reins as the producer for a two-week trial run of the show. He doesn't even take a salary over that time to save on budget. In a profile in CNN, Davies later admits that by the time the show was set to air, he couldn't even pay the bills on his apartment. He was barely able to deliver finished tapes for the network to air. ABC rewards Davies' investment with the worst time slot in all of network broadcasting, the graveyard shift, the summer. And Who Wants to Be a Millionaire debuts in August of 1999. It was scheduled just to run for those two weeks. Thank you very much, everybody, and welcome to the premiere of the biggest, most exciting, most dramatic television program that I or you or anyone else has ever seen. Every night for the next two weeks, real people just like you who called our phone number will be playing for an unprecedented cash prize of $1 million. But it instantly 
becomes a hit. By the end of the first week, Millionaire had attracted 15 million viewers per episode. So ABC brings it back for another two-week run in November. And it hits 30 million viewers an episode. It's beating Seinfeld and Friends and Frasier, and it's not even close. ABC finally has a runaway hit on their hands for the first time in decades. Now, what is the prudent thing to do? Option one would be to carefully cultivate the program, to bring it along slowly at the loss of a massive short-term boost in ratings and revenue to ensure it successfully nestles within the pantheon of ABC's weekly primetime lineup for the years to come. But audiences can't seem to get enough of who wants to be a millionaire. Their appetite for it appears insatiable. This is the kind of program that at the peak of exposure could singularly propel a network to number one. And the advertising revenue that could be had from that? Seemingly innumerable. This is the sort of once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that could define careers for the executives involved. So, what do you think ABC does? Beginning in 1999, ABC begins running episodes of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire three times a week. On Sundays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. And all three episodes generate higher ratings than anything else on television. ABC didn't even have two shows at the top of the ratings charts in three decades. Now they had three. So, they keep pushing it. In 2000, they pushed Millionaire to four times a week. Later that year, they pushed it to five times a week. Practically every night of the week, there's a new episode of the show. During this time, Michael Davies begs the network to pull back, to ensure the long-term viability of the program, and to allow them to contemplate new versions, like a daytime syndicate or special tournament editions. But not only did ABC reject that idea, they cut budget dollars for other developing programs. They were all in on Millionaire. Consider the unrelenting production of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. In 10 years, NBC's Friends produced 236 episodes. Seinfeld, 9 years, 180 episodes. ER went 15 years and produced 331 episodes. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire ran in primetime for just three years. And it produced 363 episodes. It is estimated the show produced $1 billion in revenue over that span. But audiences had gotten their fill, an overflow, actually. By 2001, only one episode of Millionaire was even in the top 10 in ratings anymore, and it was eighth. The program fatigue was undebatable, and ABC canceled Millionaire after just three seasons. Just as with the story of the shopping mall, it would be easy for us to mock the ABC executives for their short-sighted decisions. 
The greed, the predictable overexposure, the immediate reward at the expense of long-term harm to the network. In the six years after Millionaire, ABC had only one program, Desperate Housewives, even cracked the top five in seasonal ratings. But let me ask you, if you were in their shoes, can you confidently state that you wouldn't have done the same? NBC, CBS, they've been pounding you for decades. And then this trivia show pops up from out of nowhere, and it's unlike anything on television. That novelty, you may decide, is both a blessing and a curse. Remember, this is before the era of unscripted television. It's before reality TV takes off, so shows like Millionaire probably still feel like short-term, quick-run opportunities for the producers. And there's risk to minimizing the show's exposure in an effort to cultivate it. Viewers may move on to the next thing. Sure, the long-term upside is unquestionable, but with your job on the line, can you choose to forego $50 to your company today in return for the potential of double that next year? These lessons are always clearer in hindsight. If you're a real estate developer and you've been making little to no profit for a decade on capital investments, and then some tax loophole gives you the opportunity to maximize your short-term profit at the expense of future development, can you guarantee you would look the other way? Could you slowly develop Victor Gruen's vision for a master-planned community, only building shopping centers once the population in an area has demonstrated a need for it, while your friends were making triple what you were by exploiting the system? This is why structure can be so important, why checks and balances are vital in government, business, and yes, everyday life. Because when left to our own devices, we don't always make the optimal choice. Can you guarantee that you always make the right long-term decision, the decision that would be more valuable over the course of its life, even at the expense of short-term profit? Your retirement fund, your house, your car, have you always been able to avoid that present bias, that feeling that having something now is more valuable than having more later? And if you're listening to this, thinking that you always do make the right decisions, well, is that your final answer? This is David Giardino. Thanks for listening. If you know someone that you think would enjoy this podcast, please consider sharing it with them. It can make a big difference. Thanks.